0: Alrighty, welcome to the My Age podcast. A podcast that brings you conversations with people from all walks of life, using music to plot a course from their early years to how they got to where they are now. Proud member of the Podbelly Network, a really cool network of um, podcasts, which also offers a plethora of how-to's, FAQs, all that kind of jazz. If ever, if you've ever thought if you've ever thought about doing your own podcast, um, there's a whole bunch of tutorials and that kind of thing from the very basics of how to get started and what's kind of required and all that kind of jazz. So yeah, head on over there, podbelly.com, uh, for all your podcasting needs, I guess. Uh, today, well, actually, before we go on, first time listener, welcome, how are you holding? Great to have you here. Uh, 40-something time listener, fantastic to have you back, always appreciate it, get comfortable, you're in for a ride, You both of you, if you're in the latter, or the earlier camp, you know, sit down get cosy, it's a it's a longin' today, which is, uh, you know, it's what we do. Uh, so this is the last proper episode of the month, uh, before we do our, well, my, I should say, my uh, top 10 list, which will be coming out in, across a couple weeks in December. Uh, top 10 of punk rock, top 10 of hardcore, and top 10 of, I guess, I'm still calling it other, although I haven't come up with another name. Um, You know, mixed bag Stuff that doesn't fall under the punk rock or hardcore umbrella Uh, Releases of 2019 So there's that Um, If you're hearing it the day it's released It's my son's third birthday For those of you playing along at home Um, I recorded my very first podcast The day before he was born Uh, And yeah, three years later Still here Still making dreams come true. Still, you know, doing the damn thing. Um, so that's about it. If you like what you hear and you want to become a Patreon, feel free to, you know, share the love. Um, Patreon.com slash podcast. If you just want to do a one-hit, one-and-done, that's fine as well. PayPal.me slash Uh Always appreciated. Definitely never expected or, you know, required. Um, so, yeah, there's that. What else is there? I guess let's just jump head first into the episode. Uh, no music this week, as I said, because the next three episodes are going to be chock-a-block of music. Um, but yeah, so Dave Moten, um, chances are a lot of you who are listening for the first time, uh, you're here because you're an avid fan of the Sofa King podcast, which is also on the Podbelly network. Um, you know, Dave, Dave is one of the three guys, the one who does most of the research and kind of um, I guess brings brings the majority of the information to the table uh, on the Sofa King podcast if you haven't heard it before please go check it out before or after this I'm not fussed you know you come back if, if you go make sure to come back um, they do it's relentless what they do it's, it's just fantastic and it um, I'm sure I mentioned it in the actual episode itself these guys were a big influence on me actually kind of Pulling my thumb out and having a red hot crack at doing a podcast because they make it seem so easy. It's not. Well, it's it's not that it's not, but they make it seem a lot easier than what it actually is because they're you know trained professionals, I guess. So well, yeah. Well, let's call them that. Um, Look. I'll stop rambling It's a hell of an episode um, I did it with I did it over the phone So it doesn't sound Day's Like yeah It doesn't Day's voice doesn't sound fantastic Because obviously obviously On a phone line But It doesn't take long Before you forget That you're actually listening to it Listening to a phone call conversation um, Because his stories Are so fucking wild And Yeah It's I mean Look I'll stop fucking Blabbering on And get into it Cool which to me to me it's fucking amazing that you you guys do it live like do you do it live but then take it to the next level where it is like it's the joe rogan experience live where it's like you can watch it here now it's like fuck i just i'd be so i'd be too self-conscious i guess you guys have been doing it for long enough that that slides away but yeah i'd be way too self-conscious
1: I just never Brent still is self-conscious. He he's nervous about everything always. Yeah. I've just never cared. I just <laughs> I don't know. I've always been good at public speaking. I have a degree in theater. I've done radio. I've done improv. Like I, I don't I don't feel the pressure. I know I'm fat and ugly, so it doesn't matter <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if they see it or not. I feel you. Not, you, know. uh, I feel you.
0: Yeah. yeah. Cool. All right. So um episode forty two of the My Age podcast with me on the line. I've got um Someone who look if you've if you've been paying attention, you'd obviously realize that this uh, this gentleman is a part of a trio that's kind of been a huge influence on me to actually start doing my podcast. Dave Moten, um, one third of the uh, Sofa King podcast. Um, he can talk. He's this is going to be one of the most enjoyable. I mean, they're all enjoyable. This one will be really, really enjoyable. Even if you don't recognize the name, so Dave, how you doing?
1: I'm okay. As you know, it's been a wild day, but I'm here and ready to ready to go. It has
0: been.
2: And
1: picking the songs was picking the songs was hard.
0: I can imagine. Look, I I've a tried lot, it myself. Lot than I it was be. Yeah, I've tried uh-huh. it myself, and I've given up several times. So, yeah. <laughs> I can't,
1: yeah. So I ultimately, I just I kind of had to go with my typical writing catchphrase, which is um, "perfect as the enemy had done." So I just finally had to say, oh, those are good enough. Like, that's, I'm never going to be happy with them. I'm all, So I was going to be a week later and I'd be like, shit, why didn't I say this song instead? But I'll, I'm good with
0: it. I thought you were going to go with the phrase, "Um, first choice, best choice. But not that perfect is the enemy of done is a really nice way to put it as well.
1: Yeah, that's my that's my writing mantra. At a certain point, I'm like, you know what? It's done. <laughs> yeah, Could I still make it better? Absolutely. But this is enough already. Yep.
0: Unreal. So, again, you know, you've heard an episode or two. Let's just jump head mm-hmm. first. Um,
1: tell us about your parents. So my parents were quite a quite a motley... I have a, I have a strange background that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So my mother was German-Polish. Her mom was fresh off the boat Polish. Her dad was fresh off the boat German. Um, and they settled in Lodra City, Michigan, because a huge German and Polish uh, contingent. And... My grandfather never never met him. I met my grandmother once. Um, she came down to visit us and we went to Cornwell Turkey Farm in Marshall, Michigan. And I couldn't stand her. She was just a wretched woman. I didn't even want to be in the backseat with her. When she died in her will, she left me a Smurf.
0: A sm- one single Smurf.
1: A single Smurf. And it was just... <laughs> smurf like it wasn't brainy smurf it wasn't pop, it was just it was a, min-
0: a minion of the smurfs yeah, yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah and it was in her will <laughs> like she willed me her one plastic smurf. anyway i didn't know them at all
0: that's that's one last fuck you from her but yeah, yeah 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 that's
1: exactly what the fuck it was yep. but my grandfather was um I don't know that he – I guess he wasn't a Nazi because he was in America, and I know he wouldn't have been a member of the Nazi Party necessarily because he wasn't in Germany, and that's a political affiliation. But he worked on behalf of the right. He ran – he was – I don't know his exact position, but he oversaw shipping through the Great Lakes. And for people who aren't from the states, I don't know – A lot of people don't understand exactly how great the Great Lakes are. It's like a little mini ocean in the middle of America. Yeah. And it connects uh, Buffalo, New York, all the way over to Chicago. And in the 1940s, that was a super hot shit transit route. There weren't really good freeways. That wasn't by train. You just throw everything on a boat and you get it from New York to Chicago, middle of the country. And he oversaw these ships. And it came out years later that he was also smuggling – uh, German spies during world war two from Buffalo, New York to Chicago. He knew it. He would get him a temporary job on the crew. He would smuggle him into the country. So he was just full on Nazi. So, wow. so that's my mom. That's my mom's folks. And she didn't like him. She rebelled against them. She was a Beatnik. She was, I didn't, I didn't learn this. She died about seven years ago. And I think uh, two years before she died, she said, Oh, and by the way, you have another brother. Um, I don't even remember the guy's name. I met him once. He went to Bath Food. He came here to town to meet his mom for the first time. But um, she, apparently, when she was 18, went from Roger City, Michigan to California and lived in the beaches of Los Angeles. It's an episode of her life we knew nothing about. And uh, she got knocked up from some beatnik poet surfer dude and went back to Chicago. And her mom came in and they acted like she had an internship um, so that no one knew she was pregnant. And then she got pregnant and she gave the baby away to like a Catholic charity and he ended up tracking her down. So he, she was a beatnik hippie jazz loving. Like she didn't go with her parents ideology at all. Um, They were wealthy. Like she even, she at one point we were watching some discovery or history channel or some shit, and they just showed some uber-rich guy who was the, the president of U.S. Steel in the 1940s. And she was like, oh, Ralph, we used to go to his house uh, for supper?
0: Wow. Like,
1: you, what? He <laughs> used to have supper <laughs> with the president
0: of U.S. Steel? A U.S., yeah, that's monstrous. Yeah,
1: so that was that was her side of the family. But then my father is uh, was three-fourths African-American, one-fourth Blackfoot Indian, but you wouldn't see the Indian by looking at him. He was just a black guy, you know? Yeah. And he was um, from Flint, Michigan, which is one of the poorest areas in Michigan. Um, And he was a Black Panther. He was a black activist, civil rights. I have a picture of him standing next to Martin Luther King from when he was in college. Like, couldn't have been, like, so, I mean, literally both halves of my parentage, would like their families just despised each other
0: oh the wedding would have been horrible
1: yeah well, yeah. well they, i think they just eloped. The yeah yeah, yeah, was, yeah i mean one side was was german white supremacy and the other side was black power fuck yeah. whitey you know fist in the and roger city is just like the rich area of michigan and flint is the poor but they're right near each other so even like just the socioeconomic
0: was flint even poor back then yeah yeah yeah
1: well, maybe not back then. The, my, my earliest memories of Flint were from when I was in maybe third or fourth grade, and it was, it was the first time I ever went somewhere, and I was just like, holy shit, I feel unsafe here. So in the 40s and 50s, it could – I mean, let's be honest, it couldn't have been a great neighborhood because that's where all the black folk lived.
0: Yeah, okay. Yeah. You know,
1: but I mean, it still would have been
0: a- – And it just happened to have all the factories –
1: Right. It would have been, it still would have been better socioeconomically than it is now because everybody could have worked in the factory. Yeah. And now the factories are all shuttered. So the the whole place is is like the, the, I mean, even though it's an old documentary, the documentary Roger and Me um, from Michael Moore that shows Flint, Michigan, like that, that just like scratches us. That was like before Flint got bad, you know. Yeah. But so those are my parents. They were, you know, my, my entire childhood just got like, Unraveled like an onion, layer by layer, as I grew up. Because at some point, when I was in college, my mom, drunk on gin, just kind of laughed and said, "You know, me and your father were never actually married." <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> okay. did you, Did you ever meet the okay. um,
0: Did you ever meet the first, like the I guess your half brother?
1: I met him once. He okay. came to town to meet her. Um, he lives in, he lives outside of Portland, Oregon yep. and they all moved up there. And I think, it, I, I don't think it was to be around him. I think it was because he sold how amazing Portland is to them. So he, uh, she and my brother and my brother's wife, and my brother's kids all moved up shortly after they met him. Um, I suspect part of it was because he sold them on how great Portland was. And I honestly suspect part of it was my brother was a con man and a grifter. Um, and I think he had burned all his bridges here in California. And I think he saw this, like, low-hanging fruit in Oregon. And I I honestly think a motivating factor for him. was Like, if I go up there, I have a whole bunch of new people I can con. um, How new audience. So, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, no, I met the guy once. But then my my dad, I called him Fuzzy. Fuzzy, I mean, we we over the years of adulthood like when my oldest sister she's nine years older than me at her high school graduation some guy named jerry just showed up at the graduation and was like you're lisa right i'm your brother jerry and we were like you're the who the what and he pulled out a picture of him and fuzzy a whole bunch of them we were like son of a bitch and i mean and then at my other sister who's two years younger at her graduation some other brother showed up with pictures of Fuzzy at, at one of my sister's weddings. Another dude showed up at his funeral. Like two other people showed up who were our brothers. Like there were just, there's just brothers all over the place oh, yeah.
3: who would just show
1: up out of the woodwork. Cause Papa was a rolling stone. But so they, yeah, they were just, I mean, I never knew them together. They separated. My brother was a year and a half older than I am. And they separated right before he was born. But then my mom basically got with him one more time just to get pregnant with me, so that she had two boys instead of one. Okay. So I was the only I was the only planned child in the family, which I hold over my siblings to this day.
0: <laughs> it's a pretty it's a pretty cool power like power dynamic to have.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm the youngest, but guess what, fucker, you were an accident. <laughs> yeah. So.
0: They they wanted me. That's that's fucking wild. Yeah. That's yeah. So, <laughs> so sorry. Where did um where did fuzzy was it fuzzy yeah yeah where did he where did he live um like was was he was he close by or was he far away like was he yeah close by when you were growing up or
1: on and off throughout my life um we we moved from uh, Detroit to Bakersfield when I was too young to remember. We apparently we stopped in Phoenix for 6 months and everybody said fuck that and went to Bakersfield. Okay. And we were in Bakersfield together, you know, uh, even though they were apart we, were, we both lived in Bakersfield until I was in about 3rd grade. And then in 3rd grade my mom got a job in Battle Creek, Michigan and she mm-hmm. left and left us with with fuzzy and we lived that way for about six months. And then over Easter break, um, she flew us out for spring break. And then she just, like, never sent us back. And that was her plan the whole time. And so okay. she was pretty fucking burnt about it.
0: Yeah, I can imagine.
1: But, yeah, 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 I can imagine, too. I mean, technically, she had she had the custody. Oh, but right. Okay. She was just, but she never told him that. And, and that was the first time I really saw... The disconnect between my parents was seeing, just hearing on the phone how fucking pissed off fuzzy was that she was doing this move, and he even said, like, "I just want you to know that I don't want you to move there. I love you, and I want you to stay here. And this is some shit your mom is doing." And we did not talk about it, and it is not planned. I can, do- I was like, "Fuck, they, they're really."
0: Oh, he said that, he said that to you. He was he was like upfront with you. That's pretty
1: yeah. Yeah, he was upfront, and he wasn't mad. He was a he was a therapist. He was a psychologist. Like I don't know, psychologist I yeah. guess. Um, so he handled it very well. Uh, he didn't like call me in a rage or something like drunk on whiskey. But when he did talk to me about it, it, was very measured and it was very intent. You know, it was like this is fucked up. I didn't sign off on it. This is your mom. You know, and yeah. But you know, those things all come out as parents get divorced. You start to learn things about both of them.
0: Yeah, yeah, the. The stuff that no one talks, the stuff you never really meant to know mm-hmm. as a kid. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ugly. And I know they met in college. They both went to um, Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And uh, I know he, he before they met, he, he served two tours in Korea during the war. Um, so he had some pretty gnarly war stories that he would only share with us. He would share his war stories with us. If we were, he loved Hawaii. Yeah, he, he made a decent living, but he lived in a one-bedroom shithole, drove used cars, spent money on nothing, and every year um, he would fly us to Hawaii and just have this extravaganza. Like, I mean, they had to have been ten thousand dollars vacation. Yeah, you know, we'd stay in a suite. Any, you know, anything we wanted was ours. Like all this stuff, and uh, he would get he would get tipsy and smoke a cigar and watch the sunset. And about 20 minutes after sunset, if he had had enough to drink, he would, like, tell us a war story. And those would be the only times you would hear him talk about the war. And it was just and – and he was stationed there in Hawaii for a little while. And I don't know. That was the only time he would talk about it. And you he heard some gnarly shit, you know, about what he meant. I mean, it was just a full-on war. I mean, it was World War Two light, you know.
0: Yeah. Well, from there, like, are they listened? is there much music going on around the house? from either side of your parents. Yeah,
1: there was. Yeah. My mom, my mom, um, listened to a lot of classical music. So I still have a taste for classical music. Cause we just grew up and that was, that was what was always playing in the house. And my dad liked a lot of funk and a, like, he liked, you know, war and the Ohio players and Marvin Gaye and a lot of R and B and a lot of funk, but they really met in the middle with, with like jazz certain jazz performers that they both really love i think they both had a love of that um and and my mom you know every so often again just my mom was just this unbelievable character you would like you know i'd be listening to miles davis or something and she would say like, yeah, the third time I saw Miles Davis live, he never, he wouldn't play this, even though the audience was asking him to. It. Wow. Like, Miles Davis three times? <laughs> yeah. Like, what the fuck?
0: But just drops it casually. as <laughs> Like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah she would doing? drop shit like that all the time. They were pretty epic characters. <laughs> yeah,
0: so, look, have we got a song that kind of sums up? Is there a Miles Davis jam that kind of sums up that that time of your life?
1: Or th- that kind of... No, it wasn't Miles Davis, the song that I... When I really thought about it and I thought about because it, it's something that my dad would listen to and it's something that my mom would listen to and we used to listen to this shit on repeat in her band. Yeah. And it was um, the original album version. There's a million live versions that I don't like. But And even though the original album version is a live version, um, but the uh, George Benson's On Broadway... Okay, really, the song that I think of that day—that was a bridge between the two of them—that we really listened to a lot. When you
0: say the original version was a live version, do you mean it wasn't live as in this what we think about nowadays, where like a live album is, you know, recorded in front of a live audience and kind of minimal overdubs and that kind of thing? But it was live as in like someone's going to count it in, and then whatever happens happens when they hit stop. Is that what you mean by live?
1: No, I mean it was there was an audience.
0: Oh, right. Okay. A,
1: you can hear the audience cheering in the background and and um, but it was just it was the original. But I I think that was the original version. I mean there might have been an earlier one, but um I know I've tried to, on YouTube every so often I'll be like oh I should listen to on Broadway and it's just some weird live version from 1987 or something yeah. that I don't care about but like the uh, the very original one like it just and I, I, was, I re-listened to it a couple of days ago, getting ready to it. And it's just like a flood of childhood memories that that come with that song.
0: Was that, like, that was one of George Benson's biggest songs. Was, yes. Were they, like, was it that song? But, sorry, let me start that again. That was one of George Benson's biggest songs. Um, did that one resonate particularly with you? Or was it, like, was there more cuts on the album that you would have kind of gone with? Or what was, the, what was the thought process behind that particular song?
1: No, that one's definitely the one that resonates. Like, we literally, we had, a, we had an eight-track in the band which was just, like, amazing technology because you didn't have to rewind the tape, you know. Yeah. And this is decades before CD-ROMs. And we would, I mean, which if, if it was me or my brother in the front seat, as soon as that song ended, you would just hit that rewind button, the track would flip back, and we would just listen to that thing over and over and over. You go. And yeah. none of us got sick of it. My mom never got sick of it. I never got sick of it. That was, that was the one, yeah. There you go.
0: So um, how old were you when you moved back to Michigan, sorry, you said?
1: um about third grade.
0: Okay. Was it was yeah. it a big culture change? Like I mean, obviously the the climate's worlds apart, but like was there much of a culture change or a shock or you were kind of too young think, to realize?
1: Well, for one thing I shuttled I mean, I I already, I mean, I don't I don't think there really was a culture change. I don't think it was much that I detected. I think I was too young to notice how ra- – when I moved back out to California afterwards, holy shit, was was a culture shift. But yeah. when I moved out there, the only thing that I realized was just a statement on the education system of California versus Michigan because I got back there. I wasn't a great student as a kid. I was just an average student. And as soon as I got to Michigan, I was just immediately two years ahead of everybody in my class. Wow.
2: That, yeah okay because
1: California was at, at the time I don't I don't propose that it's the same at this point, but back back in the 70s um, I was just leaps and bounds. I was just so bored in school. it was just so tedious and then they finally realized, wow, he knows all this stuff. And then they discussed whether they should move me up a grade and my mom was kind of against it. My sister uh, Cynthia got moved up a grade and she didn't she just it just wasn't the same. Yeah. you know, just being with a group of people that aren't your age. And then I was, I'm also on the younger end. So like, you know, my senior year of high school when everybody was graduating and they're 18, I was like midway through 17. So I was already like, um, I was already on the younger end of whatever school grade. So yeah. I would have been like a year and a half younger than everybody. And that and, would have been, yeah. And, and, and,
0: and that age, it's a huge gap.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Um, And I don't know that I would, I mean, I've always been large. I'm I'm like the same, I was the same size as my brother at the time and he was a year and a half ahead of me. I've just been huge my whole life. Now I'm six foot five, you know? Like, so I mean, I wouldn't have been intimidated by other kids or anything like that. And I was already sort of mature for my age, but she just, she opted against it. I I don't, I'm glad. I, I, you know, I'm I'm glad to have just gone through the regular.
0: Was it more that she Plus it probably paid off. Did she see your sister go through it and think this is a bad idea for you or was it offered at the same time? I think so. Yeah, okay.
1: I think so, yeah.
0: Yeah, makes sense. What, tell us what you got up to in Michigan when you moved there. Like, um, you know, there's no – yeah, it's, it's a completely different vibe. Did, did it take you long to kind of find it's your feet different. there? Or?
1: The, well, the main thing about Michigan was where we lived, which is unlike any place anyone I know has ever lived. So my mom, when she moved out there – She got hired as the assistant director for a place called the Michigan Education Association Conference Center. So the state of Michigan, like every state in in the United States has an education association that, you know, kindergarten through high school. um, And they just, they represent the teachers and they help, you know, lobby at the state and make laws and so forth. But the MEA, the Michigan Education Association, instead of, and now every one of them has conferences constantly, yep. teachers, you know, to come and whatever. So instead of them having to shell out money for all these conferences, you know, assuming it was, you know, it was built in Michigan's heyday when everybody had, you know, car money tossing around. Yeah. Um, but the MEA, when it was flush with car money from Ford and General Motors and everything else, they, um, they built this conference center. So it was literally a hotel sort of in the middle of nowhere on a place called St. Mary's Lake, not a super populated lake on the outskirts of Battle Creek, Michigan. You know, it was it was a place where you would say, I have to go into town, you know, if you want to get groceries or yep. something because you live far enough away. Um, but it was on a lake and it was probably, I don't know, 100 acres of land with a hotel on it. Um, like three, three stories, I don't know, I would guess maybe... 60 or 75 hotel rooms, two huge dorms, ballrooms, a wing of conference rooms. There were like maybe half a dozen cabins for like summer, like camp kids would go there as a camp, you know, sailboats, a couple of docks on the, you know, that we had or whatever. So she was the assistant director for there. So we moved back there and we lived in a hotel above the kitchen in the conference center. And about four months after we got there, the car money wasn't flowing anymore, and the MEA couldn't afford to keep it open, so they shut it down. And my mom stayed on as a caretaker. Okay. So we, so they emptied it. Everyone's fired. It gets completely emptied. And there's a three story house that the director lived in on the property. So we move into this huge three story house on the property of a place that's basically the Shining.
0: Yeah. Well, that's what I've got in my head. Yeah. And, <laughs>
4: Yeah, no, that's what I have in my
1: head, too, because it was haunted as fuck. It was creepy. The snow would come in, and you would just be stuck. Like, the plows were not in a rush to get to St. Mary's Lake. Um, Just a giant frozen lake, just living in this giant, empty hotel. Me and my brother and my mom. My two sisters lived with Fuzzy out here in California, and that was our upbringing. That was where, until my freshman year of high school, that was where I lived. That's wild. That's wild. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so what, what was you, like, you know, what does a caretaker do for something that's that big that requires, you know, heavy-duty machinery to maintain?
1: Well, no, the main thing was her job was to just constantly inspect everything and whenever anything was going south or damaged or whatever – she would call her bosses and they would send people to, to do the repairs. Right. But she just lived there. The, the other reason she lived on site was because in theory, there were going to be a ton of, of offers coming in to buy the place. Yeah. And they wanted someone who was intimately familiar with it to be able to take them on tours, yep. show them what was what, et cetera. Um, but for years, no one, no one had any money. No one wanted to buy the damn place. Um, but she would, she had to do the, she had to do rounds. Like, every, every morning and every night she would do rounds of the whole property and make sure none of the doors were kicked in, none of the windows were broken, nothing had been stolen, you know. Um,
0: like, that part alone and, freaks the fuck out of me because, like, if you're, you know, if you're a, you know someone who would have been older than you were at the time, but, like, if you're a bored late teenager with, with, with access to a car and you hear about this monstrous resort-style place that's basically been abandoned... Right that's where you go hang out. Like... No one did, though. Okay, was it that far away or was it because of the snow or what was it like? Why do you think people... Cause I that, don't know. Man. It wasn't... I mean,
1: it was... It wasn't super far away. I mean, you know, you would be... You'd be at a grocery store and pizza places and all that stuff within 15 minutes. Yeah. It's not like we were, you know, it's not like we were an hour outside of town or something. Yeah. We were. We were right there. Our high school was, you know, 10 minutes away, 15 minutes away. We went to... Penfield High School which was the sort of a country high school on the outskirts of town
5: and it because I mean
1: but across the lake was it might have been because it was too posh because okay. that lake was a rich lake the country club was on the other side of the lake oh so um, people were still everybody kind of, that I, people were people were
0: using the waterway still so it kind of seemed like there was something going yeah, on yeah, yeah. There. yeah
1: right right and most of the lake it was like doctors lived there lawyers lived there one of the mansions that WK Kellogg built was on Saint Mary's Lake. So there were there were two mansions. One of them that got turned into a sanitarium in World War II, and like it had after that turned into a convent. So there was this really bizarre, you know, Wayne Manor looking convent across the lake full so of nuns. It was a convent when you and, lived
0: there. When you were across the way, yeah. When I there. lived there, yeah. Uh huh.
1: And then the other big mansion was somebody owned it, but it was abandoned. Like no one lived in it but every so often whoever owned it would like rent it out for weddings or parties or okay. lake functions or something. So, um, the lake was very much populated. It was a big, you know, people were, were always ice fishing all winter and riding snowmobiles on the lake. So there, I mean, we had neighbors like, you know, just cause our piece of land was so big. Once you got it, aside from that, the whole, you know, the lake was, was populated. So there were you know, right. but even, even having said that, I'm surprised no one, really tried that you know but it wasn't boarded up the lights were on it was all open and exposed like maybe it just was kept up enough that they didn't try to go in and shag each other i don't know yeah (laughs) Yeah, i've never thought about that it seems like that would have been the prime target and it would have been easy enough to break in there and you know screw around and you know smoke weed and have sex and do whatever you were doing in the 70s but yeah to my knowledge and my mom didn't really keep stuff from us like i don't remember that ever having happened
0: there you go um, so at this day, like how old, how much older is your brother to you? The one that was living with you?
6: I, uh, year 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 a Year and
0: a half. Cool. So. Yeah. So we were, we were really close. We're, um, we're in the seventies in, sorry, seventies in Detroit area. Like what was the music that was kind of popping at the time there?
1: Um, just all Motown. Yeah. Yeah. Like period. Like that was it. I mean, just all Motown. By this point. And we, we were kind of far away from, from Detroit, Battle Creek, maybe an hour, oh, maybe an hour and right. a half okay. from, yep. from Detroit. Yep. So Battle Creek had the distinction of really being the halfway point between Chicago and Detroit. Like if you're driving, that's the place where you stop to piss and yep. have a burger, you know? Yeah, cool. Um, which also meant that was where most of the crime was going. If there were gangs, if there were drugs being dealt, if there whatever, Battle Creek was the middle ground, you know, that was, that was the that was where people would stop off. But were, that, you, that, were you were aware
0: that, of that at a younger age or that was kind of what you, you realized that? No, not at all. Yeah, we, okay.
1: we lived, we lived in complete isolation in an empty, creepy hotel in the middle of nowhere. And I, I mean, I learned how to cook in the, in the kitchen. Like, you know, the the
0: actual, yeah, the actual kitchen, the actual yeah. kitchen,
1: like my mom's best friend who now, again, the onion layers get peeled away my mom's best friend, uh, Pat Fenton, Patricia Fenton. I honestly, in my heart of hearts, think was her lesbian girlfriend the entire time. Yeah, okay. Know. Like I really, I really think they they had an affair of some sort going on. But she was a chef, and she was the head chef of the conference center before it closed. But she taught me how to cook in the in that kitchen before it closed she would come back and show me how to turn things on. So every so often I would go down and I would fire up the big griddles and do whatever. And I mean, we ate like kings for two years, but the entire fridge was stocked. You know, the freezers, the walk-ins, like everything was stocked and the place just shut down. So we just had lobsters and filet mignon yeah, and it was all there. like frozen for two years. You know, it was all there. And there's three of us eating it, you know?
0: And you've got the, the beauty of that is you've so, actually got the, the proper equipment to cook it on. It's not like yeah, you go home, yeah, you take it to a, a standard, you know, house kit like yeah, like home kitchen, and go oh, fuck it, it'd be great yeah. to have a big grill. No, there it is, it's all there for it's you. It's there, right yeah. there. There's four
1: of them. <laughs> nuts. That's
0: so yeah, <laughs> you, yeah, you said your mum was a bit of a beatnik. Did she kind of take um take to that uh, that Motown s- style of music, or was she kind of set in ways with?
1: No, she was like all California about bebop, lab. like class, classic jazz and, and, you know, classical music, Beethoven, Bach, all that stuff. Okay. That, was, that was primarily what she listened to. If she wasn't listening to sports, she, she loved sports. She had a, a radio on 24 hours a day that was broadcasting baseball and football and, and whatever else she was just constantly listening to sports or watching it on TV, but that was sort of pre-cable. So odds are the game wasn't playing, you know? Yeah.
0: So like just a love of sports or particular code?
1: Well, she, she loved every Detroit team. Okay. Right. She loved the Tigers and she, you know, that, that was her, her jam, but she probably would have listened to anything when we were out here. She would listen to the Lakers and, you know, the Dodgers up in Oregon. She loved all the Oregon teams, like all the, especially the college teams. And uh, my my niece is exactly like she. No one else in my family gives two fucks about sports. Yeah. I, I don't care at all. Never have. Uh, my dad didn't either. But she loves it, and my my sister in law loves it, and my niece loves it. Like, although all the the women in the family like sports, and nobody else gives a shit.
0: How were you getting? I guess how were you getting music at that time? Like, was there much? Was there much stuff? Like, oh, I've got no idea of reference of what was happening um, on television, that kind of thing were you get, was it, there a lot of stuff on the radio or were there, was that like the talk shows, were they playing a lot of A lot of like it was radio.
1: Yeah? A lot of it was radio. Um, I remember, you know, just the huge influence of Saturday Night Live. You know, if we, we, we'd be allowed to stay up um, as late as we could on Saturdays, especially in the summer. Um, so Saturday Night Live was always a, a, you know, big, you know, display of, of music. Um
0: you're you're catching it on the East Coast, so it is live, aren't you? Well, East ish. We
1: were, yeah, it was live, for us. Yeah, right. Um, when when we watched it, because um, I think the time zone shifts in Chicago, so we were still. Oh, you're st- on okay. The you're same time zone. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, the Eastern time. Yeah, cool. Okay. So what time is what time is that? Um, know, what what time are the bands coming? Or what time is the that show was late. starting? That
1: comes on. The show starts at eleven thirty. So that was that was our, our one treat. I could usually not make it. I couldn't stay awake long enough to see the yeah. the musical act because so that's usually a half hour in. Yeah. Um, but also, I remember they finally got cable to the lake. Like cable was already in town, but they finally got you know cable television out at the lake. Yeah. And I just remember we got it right away, and we just had this cable box and channels. There were fifteen channels on the cable box. and Channel thirteen was MTV. And like life was never the same because there was a show called Video Jukebox that okay. would come on uh, Friday night and um, it would just sh- it would show uh, music videos before MTV did. Um, and but then MTV came out within a year. And that was just that was where we got all of our music was just watching MTV. Yeah just and endlessly you know and my sister my oldest sister lisa she sort of infused a, a love of certain music to me um when we did still live together in in california her the her tastes kind of became my tastes when i was a kid and what were they she loved uh, michael jackson okay she loved like the early rap, like the Sugar Hill Gang. I remember I would just listen to Rapper's Delight from the Sugar Hill Gang on her record player in her room constantly. Yeah, and she loved Prince. Like she was, she was the beginning of my my love for Prince.
0: That's where it came from. There you go. That's because, like, if you mm-hmm. if you've heard, you know, if you've listened to three three uh, Sofa King podcast episodes, it inevitably comes out your love yeah, yeah. So yeah, like <laughs> yeah. there you go.
1: That's that's yeah. where it
0: started. Was your br- was your brother a huge musical influence on you as
1: well, or kind of? No, not at all. He didn't really listen to a lot. Maybe later, like like in in high school and college, I think we influenced each other musically. But at that age, he didn't. He was he was a social butterfly. He was too busy going outside playing. He was just constantly. He was in Boy Scouts. He was on sports teams. He was on not because he loved the sports but because he loved the socialization Such
0: aspect of it. Yeah, um,
1: yeah, but. I wasn't. I never. I never wanted to talk to anyone or go anywhere. I would just sit in my room and listen to music and read comics and and you know ignore the world as much as possible. Yeah, that's
0: that's fair enough. So I guess well, let's move on to the next song. Is it gonna be Prince?
1: It is gonna be Prince. And I it's not like this is my favorite Prince song, but it's yeah. a good one. And in, in the in the in this time frame, I yeah. think this is this is one that really kind of stood out to me. Um, because it was it wasn't the most popular song on this album, but it was the song that really grabbed my attention. Because even though I didn't fully understand what was going on, I knew it was kind of dirty. Yeah, but but it was kind of funny, and I had no idea that it sort of you know crescendos with him like full on just making sex noises while he keeps seducing a girl. Like I didn't really know what was happening. I just thought it was pretty awesome. Yeah. but it was it was from Night. Nice. It was from the album nineteen ninety nine, it was a song International Lover.
7: seven. To activate the flow of excitement Extinction Clothing materials And pull my body close to yours Place my lips over your mouth And kiss her, kiss her In the event there's over-excitement Your seat cushion may be used as a flotation device So the aircraft has come to a complete stop. Thank you for flying. Prince
0: so that was that was a lot more subdued and bluesy, if I could use a I don't know if that's the right word, but like mm-hmm. that wasn't the bombasticness that I assumed a Prince song. Yeah, you know, it's a very deep cut. It's like it's the last song on the um the album. But yeah, it's just it's right. it's, it's not Nineteen, the,
1: 1999 uh, is Is not the album that people think it is like, cause by the time he hits, you know, his next album, purple rain and just blows the fucking roof off the joint. It's all about guitar and it's all about rock and roll, but his earlier stuff is really kind of disco and funk and 1999, I think is sort of none of the above. It's really jazzy. It's really bluesy. Um, there's not a lot of guitar in it. It's very bass driven. It's very piano driven. The whole album is very interesting song, kind of dark, kind of, I don't know, it's a, it's an interesting album, but that song, I just remember, clicked with me. And then also, like, even once we got into the era of of CDs and quit listening to records, because I've got the record, you know, the vinyl of 1999, mm-hmm. but then transitioning to CD and I don't have a record player anymore in college, and I'm just poor as fuck in college. So every so often I would get some money, from financial aid to pay for school, and I'd go down and buy myself an album or two. And I remember going down, and I was like, "I should get one of the older Prince albums that I don't have on CD." And there's a little a little kiosk in the in the music place that you could listen to. And I flipped through 1999. Now, and I remember getting to the song "Free" and getting to "International Lover," and I was like, "Oh shit, that's right! These are awesome!" <laughs> and I sort of album. listened to it with adult, yeah, yeah, adult ears for the first time, and that was that was it. But yeah, Prince was. And my father, my father loved Prince as well. Every time I would go to his house, he had Prince playing, you know. So that was that was a huge influence in, in my life for sure. Fantastic.
0: So you 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 went to college um, out of high school? Was it college? Yeah.
1: I did go to college. Yeah, not in Michigan though. like yeah. I graduated. I barely graduated. We the the conference center did finally get sold. Okay. Um, to a place that's for like a closed head trauma like, recuperation place.
2: Right. Um,
1: And they, the deal was, whoever bought it had to retain my mom's services as assistant director for two years. That was part of the contract. Wow. And they did that and then as soon as they bought it, they fired her, like, within a week. So, so, fuck you. Like, we have...
0: Was there any, like, compensation or just like, yeah, we said that, fuck off.
1: Nothing at all. Wow. Yep, said that, fuck off. So, we moved to... This shithole two-bedroom apartment, um, and my mom instantly had to like start working. She had to work at a, as a temp. She was doing typing for college students. She was she worked at a at a shoe store on the mall, like doing night shift. Um, and we were just instantly so fucking poor. And my brother um, knew a bunch of guys who were making money doing not necessarily legal things. Yeah. Who were sort of a—I mean, they're basically a street gang, um, but it wasn't like you know, 1980s Bloods and Crips kind of thing. It was more like that old movie *The Warriors*, where there were a million little tiny street gangs. Yeah, yeah. You know, without
0: the makeup. And.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, one of the guys who was in that that gang when we started Sofa King Podcast, he actually sent me a message, laughing, because Sofa King Podcast is SK. And the gang was called SK. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. were, so the SK, I was never in the gang. They wouldn't let me because they would they would be breaking and entering in houses. They were. I mean, it was pretty. It was pretty intense. Like one of the guys that they hang out with, and these were. I mean, these are still friends of mine to this day. Almost all of them. Yeah. One of them had a falling out with his dad, and he lived with a family friend who was a Vietnam vet who had a spinal injury in the war and had, couldn't use his legs but he was the number one weapons dealer in Battle Creek. So <laughs> his house, his entire, one of his entire bedrooms was turned into a, le- a legitimate bank vault and it was full of fucking rocket launchers and AK-47s and Uzis. And we used to play Dungeons and Dragons over there while he was making weapons deals, you know? Oh, obviously, and
0: obviously, like, my- um, like, not legal weapons deals. Obviously, like...
1: Yeah. Oh, it's, just full, shady, illegal, yeah. yeah, illegal as hell, yeah, yeah. Wild. Um, and another one of the guys in the gang was... um uh, His stepfather worked for one of the big cocaine cartels and was the main supplier of cocaine for all of Michigan, so... And then, you know, one of my friends' girlfriends was the number one marijuana distributor in in town. Like, they were pretty dicey people. Yeah. You know? But those are my people. That's who I hung out with in high school. Was your mom aware Oh, of- no, she was fully aware. She, yeah. she fully knew... She fully knew what they were up to, and she just fucking... Did, she just was like, good luck. Like, don't care. Like, you're... you're she was like such a firm believer in you have to walk your own path. You have to learn your own lessons. She so was like, if you're going to get killed, if you're going to get arrested, that's your lesson.
0: That's an amazing concept to have. Like, you know, I know you're a relatively recent father, as am I, and like I couldn't imagine, like I just feel like every bone in my body would be like, that's probably a great, great path to take, but I'm too much of a helicopter kind of parent to even
1: consider right, that. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. It was a different yeah. time. He'd, you know, and they would, I would try to do stuff, you know, I would try, they'd be like going out to look at cars to break into to steal stereos. And I'd be like, I want to fucking go. And they would be, and they called me Lil Moat. And they're like, you're not going anywhere, Lil Moat, you're staying at home. And they, they denied me access to becoming a fucking gangster and a hoodlum. Like they wouldn't let me do it which I thank him to this day because almost every single one of them has done time in jail. They've murdered people. I mean, it was a rough, a rough group of uh, guys, but that way he, he brought money back though. You know, he would, he would help pay the rent and do his thing. And then I started to work at Rissy burger illegally when I was 15, I told him I was 16, but again, one of the one of the guys we played Dungeons and Dragons with was the night manager, so he lied and was like, Yeah, he's got a work permit. He's sixteen. <laughs> he just just brought me in.
0: Yeah, wow. Um, so you you didn't go to college in Michigan. Um, did no. you w- where did you go?
1: I came out here okay. to, to Bakersfield.
0: Was your dad at Bakersfield?
1: He was at that time where was he at that time? He was in Bakersfield. He did. He was definitely in Bakersfield. He, he got busted for embezzling from a hospital he worked at Ooh. in Bakersfield. So when I was in high school, he did like a year and a half or two years in prison for embezzling. Okay. Um, he and his, his boss. Um, and but after that, he was no, he wasn't. He was in Florida. I take that back. He moved to Florida and then he moved to Ann Arbor. So he moved all over the place. He lived yeah. in Michigan again. He lived in Florida. He lived in Arizona. He lived all over the place. He didn't come back to Bakersfield until um, he retired.
0: Right. So you came back and didn't and but had lived, a couple of sisters local, but that's about it.
1: Yeah, they were here, and that was the only reason because I was going to go to Johnson and Wales Culinary School and learn how to be a chef. I'd been studying culinary arts all through high school. Where's that so base? that interested in me. That that was in. Rhode Island, I think, Okay, but I didn't go. My sister, um, I didn't have the money. So I was, I was delaying by a year. I had just got a job at a security place doing like night security. And I was supposed to start in a month. And my sister was like, Oh, well, if you've got a month before you start, like she, and she was always the good one. She was just finishing her master's degree in English. She had just gotten married. She was the only one in the family who was making any money. And she was like, why don't you fly out and stay with me for like two weeks? Um, and then you can fly back home. And I was like, that sounds great. So she flew me out to here to Bakersfield and about a week and a half into it, um, like my mom just kept sending her boxes of shit. I was like, I don't know what the hell my mom's sending her, <laughs> yeah. but just every day there were more boxes on the step for my sister. And about a week and a half in, I was like, so we need to like talk about getting me a return ticket. And she was like, yeah, you're not getting a return ticket.
0: Right. So your mom's sending your, all yeah. your clothes and stuff over.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And she was like, all that shit piled up in my closet, that's your shit, unpack it. That's your room. You're staying here. You're home, We're gonna, I'm going to pull every string I have. You're, yeah, this is it. You're not going back there. You're not going to get arrested and shot and start dealing drugs. Yeah. Like, I'm getting you away from that life, and you're now going to go to college and live here with me.
0: It's a pretty, again, it's a pretty, like, mind-blowing move, but obviously your mom's like, it was for the best because she saw what was going right. on. yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Yep, yep. Fuck. And I I didn't really care. I was like, that's cool.
0: Would, do you think you would have dealt with it? Do you think you would have dealt with it okay if your mom had said to you, like, been up front and said, hey, I think you should move and not come back? Like, how do you think you would have reacted to that?
1: Oh, I don't think I would have been gone for it. Yeah, right. Like, I had my plan. I was about to start a job. I was going to, you know, go become a chef. That was my, my goal. Because she ended up, she finally got a decent job at Kellogg's. Um Kellogg's is centered in Battle Creek, Michigan. Yeah. And she had a job um, doing customer support for Kellogg's. And the same floor at the main building downtown, not the factory, but like the main headquarters downtown, there was the same floor where their corporate chefs would cook recipes to put on the back of cereal boxes.
2: Oh, yeah, okay, yeah.
1: So, yeah, every time I would visit her, she would say, hey, let's go see if somebody's cooking something good. And you would just walk over to all the test kitchens and she knew everybody, and they'd be like, yeah, hey, I'm making this marshmallow thing with fucking this cereal. You should try it. And get these amazing kitchens, and they just cook what they wanted all day long. And I was like, that's the greatest fucking thing I've ever seen. But she knew I wanted to do that, and I wouldn't have said no. And she knew I was addicted to Dungeons and & Dragons and all my friends, and I wouldn't have wanted to leave that, which I wouldn't have. Yeah. But there it was. So I started college and did surprisingly well at it. And
0: What did you study?
1: Never, uh, English. Okay. I studied English and then I also studied theater and philosophy, but that was only to know English better because I started to realize that every era of English was informed by theater of literature. Like they danced the same circles, you know? Yes, and right. I started to realize that every, every era of literature was informed by whatever the modern day philosopher was saying. So I knew if I could understand these philosophers, I would understand sort of the zeitgeist of that era and I could. Get my head around the literature better. Yeah. So I studied all three. Um, Sorry,
0: before you go on, is that something you kind of came to yourself or did someone show you that? Like someone, yeah.
1: yeah. No, I just pieced that together through the various classes I was taking. And I knew I wanted a double major, but then I wanted a triple major. And I would have gotten all three degrees, but the state of California said enough. We're not giving you any more money. You fucking graduate already. Oh, so ah, right. With, okay. With major. In, yeah. You would, yeah, so you would, any, anything like,
0: above guess, that you would have had to pay for.
1: Right, And I had no money except yeah. for financial aid. So uh, so I have a degree in English and a degree in theater, and then I almost have a degree in philosophy, but I ended up with what they call a minor in philosophy, but I studied it for for quite a bit for
0: someone that wasn't a great student, you've you've kind of swung, yeah, you know, you've had a big swing at like at uni- at college. like was that? yeah, is did something click or, like what? What is it about that? Because yeah, like it's just a massive turnaround in in not much like I think it not was,
1: much time. It was a couple of things. I mean, I think the challenge of it. I was so far behind because I was such a shit student in high school. All I studied, I, I I I only had half days in high school. My junior and senior year, you, I I was on this, this vocational track, so I would half the day would be spent at a job learning your skill. Yeah. And then half the day you took the classes that were mandatory, which was bullshit because I worked the night shift at a big boy, but my manager was cool as fuck. And she said, no, I'll just tell the high school that you're working the day shift, like the breakfast shift. Awesome. Um, cause she, she wanted me to close. So I'd be there till midnight anyway. And I was like, I can't close if I have to be at school at seven 30, you yeah.
3: know?
1: So I just, I would go, I would work until 11 or 12, we would go play Dungeons and Dragons till four in the morning. I would wake up at 10 or 11 and roll into school right at lunch if I got free state-paid lunch. And then I would take my couple of classes till three and go home. So I was not academic at all. I was so far behind. But there was a challenge to that. And just also seeing, like, the difference. I would, day one of a class at college, and they are taking a role, and they would come, like, in high school, when they would take role and they would get to David Moten and you would just see this look on their face like they just took a bite of pig shit when they saw the Moten name because they knew my brother. They knew the, and they they would knew the lineage, say, yeah. Yeah, and they'd say, oh, you're Billy Moten's brother. And I'd be like, yeah, and they'd be like, oh. And I was like, fuck, I've already failed this class. <laughs> yeah, it's over. Okay. You know? yep. But then my sister was super student at Cal State, so I got there and I would have a professor that would call my name and they would say Moten you're not Cindy Moten's brother, are you? And I'd be like, yeah. And they'd be like, oh, welcome. This is going to be a great quarter. And I'd be like, what the fuck? Wow. So just the respect I got and just, I mean, just freedom of thought. Like, I mean, Battle Creek was pretty close-minded, you know, just small town. Bakersfield isn't a huge town, but you get to a university and things change. There's just yeah. different people and different ideas. And it was just intoxicating, you know, to be there. And a great guy, uh, one of the deans, a guy named Lee Adams, just took me under his wing. I had a 1.7 GPA coming out of high school, which is a D-plus average, which is just fucking dog shit. I should have never gotten into the college. Yeah. And he pulled all these strings to get me in. He got me work that he shouldn't have gotten because my sister worked for him. And he just, like, set me on this path. Like, he decided early on, this guy's going to teach English, and he made me that, you know?
0: That's that's incredible.
1: And, and you're, you're obviously,
0: yeah. like, do you have, when you're doing a master's in English, what are your options to come in? Like, at the, end of, at the end of the line, what are your options? Like, obviously, an English teacher is one of them. What else could you have pursued?
1: Well, with a master's degree, in, in the States, there's different paths. Most people don't get a master's degree in English because it's pretty limiting what you can do with it. Yeah. You're pretty much going to get a bachelor's degree in English, and then you get your credentials, which lets you teach kindergarten through high school. Right, That's okay. the typical path. If you're getting your master's degree, you're probably moving on to a Ph.D. because you want to teach college. Um, but getting a master's degree at a college that doesn't offer Ph.D.s, you're probably going to be teaching at a community college with a master's degree, um, which I didn't know that while I was getting my master's at Cal State or I probably never would have gotten that because yeah. I tried to go get my Ph.D. at UCLA but they looked at my master's degree, which was, you know, I don't know, 15 classes, and they said, we'll accept these three classes. Otherwise, you have to completely get another master's degree in oh. English from us yeah. before you can start your PhD. And I was like, fuck you, I'm not doing that.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a lot of, yeah, double-diffing. Fuck.
1: Which I'm glad I didn't. I mean, even when I was there, because I had gotten hired at Bakersfield College, where I work right now, yeah. um, tenure track, et cetera. I got hired there when I was 26, because I started teaching at Cal State when I was 21. And I got hired at 26 and I had a research internship at UCLA. So I was, and I was considering starting in the fall at UCLA, but I had just gotten hired at Bakersfield college. Um, and everyone I met at UCLA, all the full professors, one by one, they were like, well, let me get this straight. You have your master's degree. You just got a full-time tenure track job at a college. And you want to not accept that job so you can get a PhD be a hundred thousand dollars in debt and then hope that you someday get a tenure track job at a college. That doesn't make any fucking sense. And I'm like, yeah, it doesn't make any
0: sense. <laughs> and then you, yeah, that's, it's, that's good that someone can point that out for you. Cause again, like it's not the kind of thing that you just automatically know kind of going into it.
1: Right. Right. Um, right.
0: So like, this is probably skipping ahead a bit, but I'm sh- I'm sure you've mentioned that you worked in the like educating prison, uh, Educating inmates at a—I I assume it was um, the Bakers- at Bakersfield prison. It was, was that- um, not in
1: Bakersfield, okay. there's, but there's prisons. We're like the, we're like one of the prison capitals of California. Our county is. Yeah, they're all outside of Bakersfield, but there, a lot of them are in a smaller town called Delano, which is near here. So I caught at one of the two one of the two prisons in Delano.
0: Is was that part of? Was that part of like? Did you jump in did you jump out of the job to teach there or was that kind of under the umbrella of the um the Bakersfield College?
1: It's Bakersfield College. They have a thing called the Inmates Dollars Program. So you any any faculty member from Bakersfield College can opt to go teach at the prison. Um, they can never force anyone to by contract. It's always gotta be voluntary. Yeah. And one of my professors, a great mentor and friend of mine named Steve Carter, he taught about when he was in grad school in Arizona, um, the only teaching jobs he could get were at a prison. And he said, like, you know, that was, like, 20 years earlier to him. Yeah. And he was like, to this day, it's the best teaching I've ever done in my life is teaching in those prisons. And ever since then, I was interested. And as soon as we were able to teach English there, I was like, let me fucking do it.
0: Yeah, put your hand up straight away. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's – that's. And I just know people. I mean so many of my friends from high school, my father even, like I know so many people that went to prison for just dumb decisions and, you know, horrible financial circumstances where they have no option but to do dumb shit to try to make money. Yeah. And they're not bad people at all and they're stuck in prison and there's no way to improve themselves because our prison system is a fucking joke in America. And I'm just thinking if I can be the guy that can fucking elevate them and teach them how to write better and get them that much closer to a degree or give them some, you know, literature to read, like you can read the best literature in America, you know, in, in human history for, for 16 weeks. And we'll talk about it. And that's fucking dope. You know, like, I just, I just really enjoyed that aspect of it. I mean,
0: the, the, the prison system's a, a whole other thing to, unto itself like conversation wise, but yeah, it's interesting to, like, maybe it's – you know, I didn't grow up – a. I grew up middle class, you know, it is middle class in the suburbs, it is what it is. Um, but it only really dawned on me probably about 10 years ago or so, um, a couple of singer-songwriter guys came out uh, who were from various parts of the US and did this tour and someone got – and then one of these singer-songwriters gets up and says, you know, this song goes out to anybody who's got friends or loved ones in prison. And the, right. and the crowd's kind of response was like, cool, okay. Um, I guess yeah. play the song. And he's kind of looking around and going – and he looked around and was like "Like this is so – like basically implying how weird it was because he's like back home the second you say that, half the crowd erupts yeah. because they've yeah. got a friend yeah. or loved one who's doing time mm-hmm. and it's, it's just – it doesn't – like I mean – it's not. It, I wouldn't say it doesn't work like that out here, but it's definitely not even close to that kind of level of incarceration.
1: Oh, it's ridiculous! It's disgusting. Yeah, it's horrible. So
0: yeah, that's yeah, yeah weird. Weird tangent. I just yeah. You know, yeah, but and I'm. Um, it's a very noble thing to kind of. and You don't need me to tell you that, but yeah, very noble thing to kind of give back in in any way you can on that on that front.
1: Yeah, and I want to get back to it. I, ha- I haven't done it in the last couple of years just because of Vaughn and. And, you know, having my godson live with me, but um, he doesn't live with me anymore. So my, my time is freed up a lot more. But I mean, when you have a brand new baby that you're co-parenting, you can't be an hour, you know, have a job site an hour away where you're in there for three hours and it's a felony for you to take your phone with you. it's Like for four hours, for five hours, I'm just out of the loop. If shit goes down, you can't even reach me. Like I'm, you know. So I was like, I, I can't do that, but I I might try again next year. I might use, yeah. back into it if I really I really like it.
0: Cool. So um, you you're in college and you've kind of you're studying. What kind of music? What's on your radar?
1: So on my radar in college is this is I mean I'm I'm mixed I'm half black half white but I mean I I spent the majority of my life and my childhood with my white mother yeah. Right? So black culture is i mean every time i was a fuzzy he would always like teach me blackness and fuck the man and don't listen to this and don't trust that and you got to watch your back and you know he taught me all this stuff but yeah. i wasn't like in the culture but in college lee adams that dean who brought me in like he's notorious in the state for being the guy who turned cal state bakersfield black like he recruited from Watts. like some of my friends were like uh, crips from the great street crips like I mean, we would recruit, we would go into the worst neighborhoods in Los Angeles and recruit gang members and get them to come to Cal State Bakersfield, and that's what he did. And he, I mean, you go, I mean, any college that I've been to, unless you go to like some traditionally black college or a college down south or something, there's nothing like it. When you walk around Cal State Bakersfield, there are so many African American students and it's because of Lee and his recruitment.
0: When you, sorry, when you say you went and, when you say, sorry to interrupt, when you say you went and recruited people how does that work? Like were, there, were they giving special leniencies for um, less financially viable students to kind of potentially sign up and, well, absolutely, and get the help? Yeah. Or
1: if, if you were poor and if you were a first-time college student, there were a lot of grants and a lot of – he ran a thing called the Equal Opportunity Program yep. and he could get he could get people fully funded to go to college. And um if big – and he was black. And he was a civil rights activist in the, in the 60s and so forth. And he, um, you know, he would send us to these uh, poor high schools um, and his, his goal. I mean, granted, he was black and that was his passion. But when you look at the statistics in America, the lowest success rates and retention rates in any college in America is African-American males. Like by a massive drop Like African American females Much higher success rates Much higher retention rates But black males are just like You're not going to get into college And you are not going to stay more than a year if you do And he wanted to turn that around Okay So we would Our recruitment would be We would drive into those neighborhoods to, to, To Watts, to Compton, to wherever And we would go to those high schools And set up a booth in the hallway And just try to holler at people And get them interested in going to Cal State You know which was not an easy sell <laughs> because Bakersfield is kind of a shithole. And it's like, but at, at the same time though, to a lot of people, it was an easy sell. because so they're like, this is your way out. Like you live in a fucking ghetto. You have no opportunities. And right now I'm handing you an opportunity to get the fuck out of the ghetto and change your life completely if you want to do it. So a lot of people did. Think of
0: the other alternative to quote unquote getting out is joining, is joining forces. Yeah. Like joining, Army, Navy.
1: Yeah, I mean, pretty no. much you could join the Army. I mean, you were either going to join the Army, join a gang, or get onto a professional sports team, which you weren't going to do. Yeah. But that's the belief. You know, they think they're going to, you know, I'm going to play for the Lakers one day. And it's like, no, you're fucking not. Yeah. Like, sorry. <laughs> yeah. not, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. Like, the numbers are against you, my friend. And plus, you're not doing shit in school. You're not going to a college, which means they're not even looking at you. Like, no, sorry. Yeah. Um, But that was what we did. And and at one point, probably my, I don't know, my sophomore year or my junior, one year in there, he wanted a club called BMOC, which in, you know, um, in America, that abbreviation typically stands for big man on campus. Like if you think you're the shit, you know. You're the, you're the big man on campus. And he wanted to start BMOC, which was black males on campus. And he wanted to be a student group with student funding and all this stuff. And he was like, and you know, he's said, brother, uh, you and Will and Libby. And Libby was a great street crip who got shot in the knee. So he couldn't, he was, he was supposed to go to UCLA. He was like a, an Olympic contender. He got shot in the knee in a drive-by. And, in what, in what, what sport? Uh, track. I don't know exactly which sport. I know it was track. He was a runner, a sprinter. Like it wasn't like long distance running. Yeah. Um, but even with his knee shot and recuperated, he came to the lower division of colleges and set state records that still haven't been broken. Which wow. so <laughs> That's awesome. Um, but yeah, me and Libby and Libby, I mean, this is straight, this is NWA era straight up, this is the Compton riot, you know, the Rodney King riot, Libby was trying to talk me into going down to the riots with him to fucking steal TV sets and shit, (laughs) like this is like in that era, you know, and um, but Lee wanted us to start a club called Black Males on Campus and that was really my first, in a way my first indoctrination really into black culture, because I was now lecturing at high schools about black culture. And I was, you know, recruiting every, you know, just recruiting black students, getting the black students at Cal state Bakersfield to join this club and to put on dances and to go talk to junior high kids and say, stay out of gangs and just like all this stuff. So now I was suddenly like up to my ass in black culture. And that was right when Spike Lee's Malcolm X came out and everybody was like black power and wearing medallions and, um, that was kind of a scene at the time. And like that, that music to me was NWA. I had already started listening to their first album in Michigan, my high, my senior year. Yeah. But when I was in Bakersfield, they blew up and they're an hour and a half away. You know, that is the culture. Like this is where it is. Just yeah. like Compton's right there. I'd go there twice a month to fucking recruit, you know? And like, we would go to recruit at a school. And before I even got in the car, Libby would look at me and say, oh, you can't wear that shirt. Yeah, right. I'd be like, okay, Libby. Like, I yep. don't need to know why. Yeah. I just can't wear this shirt. I'll go get something else, you know? And
0: um, Yeah, he doesn't make the rules. He just enforces them.
1: Yep. Yeah, yeah. And he just knew the rules and he would, you know, and there were certain schools that Libby could not go recruit at because he was a crit and these were blood schools or fucking what, you know. So I was like really into black culture and black gang culture and all this stuff. because That was, that was like the thing. And it was hard to pick a song for that era because I wanted to lean towards uh, something from NWA. But when I really think about that era and what I constantly had on blast in my car was um, even though NWA was, I think what had a bigger impact on me was Public Enemy.
0: Wow. Okay. Fantastic
1: and just because of their message like i mean nwa was fuck the police and you know gang this gang that public enemy was like no we're gonna uprise we're gonna we're gonna fight the power we're gonna change the system like we're gonna get together and it was just this black empowerment message and so was nwa in a totally violent different way you know um and even you know famously public enemy released a, a song called uh uh yo nigga and it was like I'm not gonna use that word even though everybody else is yeah. the meaning, you know, but um so yeah I would say by the time I get to Arizona from public enemy was probably my rebellion black power phase in college.
6: What's up,
0: So, like, your uh, Libby, who couldn't get into schools, was it? Was there something like? Did he have tattoos? Like, I, I can imagine you've got some kind of dress code. You know, you don't obviously you not weren't, weren't wearing suits mm-hmm. and ties and that kind of thing. But like, when you're going to recruit, like, how would someone know? Was he? Was he that infamous?
1: In um in in his particular area, like where the. Whatever area the Great the Great Street Crips were in, which I don't know the area well enough, I know it was in Watts. Um, yeah. That was his area, and people knew him. If he went to the schools just outside of his area, they were like, "Yo, there goes Libby!" Like, fuck him, you know. And in his school, it was like, "Oh, there's Libby. He's one of us," you know. And he was a full-on Crip. Like I don't know what it takes to become a full-on trip, but it isn't nice or pleasant. Like you hear rumors from anything from you got to jump a guy to you got to kill a guy to whatever. But he was full-on, and there was a there was a crew of about five of them that w- we recruited the same time as Libby, and only Libby and one of the other ones actually made it all the way through, and the other ones dropped out and went back to gang life. But
0: do you still hear from Libby?
1: I don't hear from them often. I ran into him at the grocery store. Um maybe a year ago, and I was like, oh shit, it's Libby. And he didn't see me, and I just like walked up like way too close behind him, just to fuck with him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and he just slowly turned around with this fucking ice cube grit down on his face, waiting to fuck up whoever was creeping up behind him. And he saw me, and his face just lit up, and he gave me a hug. He was like, I was about to fuck somebody up. <laughs> I was like, I know you were
0: Yeah, you are poking the bear doing that.
1: Yeah, yeah. But he's a track coach. He teaches junior high. He's fully out of the line. And he, it got dicey for a minute. He started shooting craps. And he got into some kind of trouble, which I never knew the details of. And he had to get out of Bakersfield for about a year. And he started hanging out yeah. with his old homeboys down in, in Watts. And he ended up, Lee was like, no, get him back up here. And we dragged him back to Bakersfield. And now he's got two girls, and he's, which makes me feel fucking old because one of his girls tried to get into my class uh, a year ago about my class. Yeah, was that,
0: that definitely would put a um that would yeah. put your age like whatever <laughs> yeah. your age might be, that'll yeah. put it in check straight away. Yeah. No matter how yeah. young you feel. Yeah. 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 Fuck. That's wild. Um, so your mom did your mom ever move back from Michigan to California or did she yeah, kind of, I moved she stayed there. Uh,
1: she and my brother lived out there for about six months after I moved out here. And then they both moved out here as well. And he he started Cal State as well. And my mom uh, got a job working for Kaiser Permanente, which is a which is a an HMO. Um, it's a, Do you have HMOs in Australia? Is it oh? Is it health insurance? It's health ins- It's health insurance, but it's not just health insurance. It's also the health provider. So you pay okay. into them like health insurance, but there's a Kaiser Permanente facility. And it's only Kaiser Permanente doctors and so forth. In a town the size of Bakersfield, you're kind of fucked if you have Kaiser because of something major happening. Like a friend of mine got his jaw broken, and they had no emergency jaw surgeon in Bakersfield on the weekend, so he either had to sit around all weekend with a broken jaw, or he had to drive to L.A. to get his jaw fixed at a Kaiser Permanente hospital. Um, yeah,
0: no, we don't. We don't have like we've got. It's slowly creeping in. As right. in, like, so our our health fund, our health fund providers will have, like, um, they'll have. It's only when I oh, I've only noticed in the last two years or so. But like, a health fund provider might have, open up a dentistry or like a dentist clinic or right. a, you know whatever. But like our you know our our health system is pretty incredible in the sense that if you if something fucks out with your you know your friend broke his jaw if if i broke my jaw i'd just get uh, right. ambulance would come pick me up take me right. to the hospital it's all publicly funded you can do right. it priv- you can do it privately if you opt to and you'll get the better service and quicker you know l- lower wait times and less less occupied hospitals and that kind of thing but if she goes south you will get taken to a hospital
1: you'll get taken yeah yeah, yeah. and well in america yeah, i think the, after. the only industry that's more fucked than our prison system is our health system so
0: yeah yeah. It's 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 heartbreaking like looking at it. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. like so I, I love um I I fucking like everything that oh well, not everything, but like a lot of things that um have kind of like culturally that have influenced me have come out of particularly the um California and the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Um and I you know, my wife and I get there every like get to the US every since 2010, we've been every second year or so. Oh like nice. we just love it there and just thrive on it. But you know, we we go into looking at it, going, "Well, we've we've got insurance, and we've got a couple of dollars yeah. behind us if yeah. something went wrong, and that kind of thing." But like that underbelly of that, you know, we don't experience because the people that are experiencing it are probably the person that made my wife a coffee or right. sold me my bagel, right. or that kind of thing. Right. Like right. Yeah. that whole underbelly doesn't yeah. hit out, doesn't hit my radar, but I know no. it's there, and it's it's fucking heartbreaking.
1: It's heartbreaking, yeah. and I'm. Just the economy in general in America is is just turning into a part-time economy. Like no one can get full-time jobs anywhere. No one wants to hire you full-time. No one wants to pay for your benefits. No one wants to give you a pension. Everybody's like, well, how many hours do we have can we give you and not make you full-time? Well, then that's exactly how many hours we are going to work every week and not one hour more. And everybody just, just gets minimum wage. And it's just, I mean, I'm so fucking lucky about the job I have. I'm so fucking lucky yeah. with my job I mean it's unbelievable
0: could could your job happen like could the way you did it could that happen in 2019 could some d like you know c c student really turn their life around yeah that in quickly and then quite like path?
1: Like the, yeah 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 the yeah. options if, if are you, still there to do
0: that mm-hmm.
1: if you have um I was really freakishly lucky about the people I met and A woman uh, named Kim Flachman is an author, of uh, an English professor. She took me under her wing right when we did. And the two of them, like, I should not have been teaching college classes at 21 without a college degree. But they found some loophole that let me do it. So by the time I finally had my master's degree when I was 26, I had already been teaching at college for five years. And even, like, when the dean hired me, like, he even told me, like, I've never seen someone so young with such a resume. And he said, I, he said, I don't mean to put a lot of pressure on you, but I expect really big things from you at this college. Like we're hiring you at this, at this age because we expect big things from you. Cause no one gets, you don't get a full professorship at 26. You're lucky to get it at 36. Yeah. It, was, it was, it was freakish. And part of it was I, there was a guy, another part-timer, this guy named Jack Winters, who was a golden boy. And, He was applying for the full-time job that was open. I had just finished my courses for my master's degree. I was planning to go get a PhD, looking at UCLA, all this stuff. And no one even applied because Jack was going to get the job. He was beloved of everyone, right? And I was like, fucking all of my, one of my mentors, a guy named uh, Dr. Edwin Barton, he said, apply for it. Hope you get an interview because the more you can do interviews like that, you're just going to get experience. And then you're not going to be nervous when you go for one that you really want, you know?
0: Makes sense. So I was yeah. like,
1: yeah, it's not a bad idea. I'll, I'll, apply for it. So I applied for it. I got an interview, never going to get the fucking job. Jack's getting a job. And I go into the interview and it was just such a, just everything was in alignment. A friend of mine who was one of my mentors and my boss at Cal State who came over to Cal State was on the hiring committee. So I walk into the room and she's in there. A guy <laughs> who used to work for EOP at Cal State Bakersfield was on the hiring committee. I used to sit at his desk when I was 17 and string all of his paper clips together and piss him off and he's in the room. <laughs> and then like three people I didn't know and I'm sitting there and I'm like, I'm not getting this job. I don't want this job. I'm going to get a PhD. So fuck it. I'm telling off-color jokes. I'm like busting balls on the people in the room. I didn't give two shits about what I did. I was not nervous. I just, I just crushed it. It was like a stand-up routine. And I walked out of the classroom where the interview was and like two doors down, Jack Winters came walking out of his room and he was like, oh, did you just see your interview? And I was like, yeah, how'd yours go? And he was like, oh, I didn't take it. Like what? Oh wow! He said, he said "Yeah, I want to. You know, I was thinking about it last night, and I was—he was just about to get married. He was like, I was talking to my fiance, and it's like my dream is to be a screenwriter. And if I take this job, I'm never going to do it. So I called him last night, and I told him I don't want the interview, and um, this is going to be my last semester here, and I'm going to move to L.A. and try my hand at screenwriting. And I was like, Are you fucking kidding me right now? <laughs> like I just <laughs> fucked that whole interview off. And he was like, Well, you probably went better than you thought." And then, like, I got phone calls, and they were like, "That's the best interview I've ever seen." And I was like, "Yeah," because I didn't give a shit.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
1: that's
0: yeah, that's a that's a hell of a way to run it, and you know, yeah. but you know, yeah, what are the chances? So, does is he, do you still hear from Jack? Is he still screenwriting? Or he uh, like, because that doesn't seem like an easy occupation. Okay, it's
1: not an easy occupation. He got really close. He had two screenplays. Like one of them, like Spike Lee's production company, was in talks for and. Another one, um, he was thinking about taking a job, um, being a scripted writer for, for like a drama show, like, which isn't what he wanted to do. He wanted to write movies. Um, and I, I haven't talked to him in years. Last I knew he was still writing screenplays and doing the hustle and he was teaching part time at a couple of places and his now wife got a full-time gig teaching somewhere in LA. So, but yeah. yeah.
0: So really, really early on, obviously, so you mentioned you did, um, you master, uh, got a master's in English, but mm-hmm. you also said theatre. Did you – and and before we hit record, you mentioned, you know, you'd done improv and you'd done theatre and that kind of thing. Yeah. Did that ever – like did you ever not pursue anything like – well, did you ever pursue anything in any kind of level, be it like trying to make a professional – trying to make it a thing or even just doing it as a side hobby? Like,
4: No, not like at all.
0: Even in, in theatre,
1: like I was studying – I was really studying drama, which is different than theater. Okay. I was studying the plays as literature, um, but it's all the same degree. So in order to study the drama, you also had to study the stage production side of it, or you wouldn't really understand the drama. I understand that you know. now at the time I was all salty about it. But so we had to do, yeah, right. you know, you had to be involved in four productions before you could graduate. But by being involved, you didn't have to act. So I was typically the assistant director or the stage manager for most of the plays. So I was just there yeah. constantly like behind the scenes telling the prop die calling cues on the headset, you know, um, yep. which was about the most stressful thing i would ever done in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. If you're just looking at this book and it's like standby light Q seven, ready sound Q eight, light Q six, go standby, white uh, Q nine. Like Q eight ready uh, prop on stage, and you're just like just ca- everyone is like listening to your voice to like go out and do the next thing. And if you fuck up, the whole production is fucked up, and it's like so. So, so cool. but
0: that comes across as the kind of thing. Like, obviously, it's it's crucial, but mm-hmm. why wouldn't why wouldn't the people that are being asked to do that like why wouldn't they just know that that's what they need to do? Like so, I, and I liken that to like an, you know a conductor at an orchestra. Right. I've never like I. I get the I get the idea. Like I get the idea of it, but you should all just like coming from playing an A quote unquote like from a rock upbringing, playing in rock bands for the last twenty something years, you're all in it together. You you all know your right. parts together. Like well, what, most, what is with, the purpose of?
1: With most of it, like I would be sitting in the light booth. At, my, at our particular yeah. theater, I'd be sitting in the light booth right next to the light operator. So that was kind of pointless. They know the lighting cues. They're looking at the stage. The next room over, right, okay. which they could hear our voice as the door leads through us was the main um, soundboard so when we call the sound cue, they could hear it whether they were on headset or not. And they're looking at the stage and they know what has to happen, but a, they're yeah. not paying that close attention half the time. There might not be a sound effect for 27 minutes and their mind is going to wander and they're just going to fucking miss it. But as soon as they're on oh, headset and they hear, you know, they hear standby sound cue 17, they're like, Oh fuck sound cue. That's me. But then there's also all the people in backstage. There's some sound cues that have to happen backstage, you know, like a fucking thunder rumble from a, big metal thing or and they can't see what's happening they can't on stage they're behind the scenery so they're on headset waiting for your call and it's just a gospel like you don't do anything until the call is made you know so okay was, that makes complete sense yeah totally fun totally addicting and probably like i don't like going to the theater now because i hear it Like when I'm sitting sitting in the stage, as soon as the lights, as soon as the house lights start dimming, I just know somewhere in this building right now someone is shitting their pants, and they just said, (laughs) they just said, go light cue one, and they're staring at their book for the next two hours, Stress the fuck out, and I'm waiting for every light cue to fuck up, I'm waiting for every sound cue to fuck up, and I'm just so nervous. The whole it's like really hard for me to suspend disbelief and fall into the play because I'm so nervous about the technical side of all of it but but I never really I wasn't wasn't an actor I, I was in two plays in the whole time I had I had one line I had one I had a one word line in two plays my entire theater career I played a clumsy Klansman in the KKK in one play and had no line and then in another play I played, um uh yeah, I was fully, full clan robes, the whole thing. Right. Okay. Yeah, our clan was me, one other black guy, two Mexicans, and three uh Hispanic females. That was the that was the clan. Wow. But welcome to theater. <laughs> no, all everyone saw was the robes, you know. Yeah. Um, yep. but and then I played a murderous landlord who's I remember all of his lines and they were epicurus.
0: It was what, sorry? Epicurus.
1: The Greek Epicurus. philosopher. Yeah. That, that was, was the my, line. That was it. Epicurus. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's it's an easy one to remember. Just right on the back of your hand.
1: Yeah, yeah. So but I did improv. I loved improv. That was really addicting. I did that for years. Um, did some radio, did some talk radio, like late night talk radio, which is why Brent and Brad thought of me to do the podcast because I had already done that. For so a little bit.
0: Oh, so you were actually on it. You weren't. You weren't working behind the scenes. You were actually doing it.
1: Yeah, we were. I was. It was myself and my brother and my friend Steve. We had a radio show called The Motown Men and Walls. She came on in the middle of the night on Sunday. It was like a call-in talk radio show. And we did like the voiceover for a couple of like jazz shows that you would record on Sunday and they would release throughout the week or whatever.
0: So how do you fall into that? Like, how how do you fall into getting a radio show with your brother and, you, and a friend?
1: My brother's hustle. He was just endlessly hustling. The the person in charge of the radio station met Will on a couple of projects he was with where they were doing radio ads. He found out that they had a, because you have to pay for your own time slot with ads. They don't sell the ads for you. And he found out that this late night time slot had a rating of zero, which meant literally no one was listening. And he was Mm -hmm. like, so how much do we need to give you in ad revenue to take over that where all you're doing is doing reruns and they were like just fucking do it like give sell ads if you can just take the spot so we took the spot and we got it up to a two or something in the course of our two years which they were pretty blown away by because that's like two percent of the of the radio audience in the town was listening to us with no, with like on an AM station in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night, they're like, "I can't believe you got it too." I was like, "Me neither."
0: That's pretty impressive. Yeah. yeah. And it was, and it was just like there was never a topic, or it was just like mics on chat, or was there a
1: mics on? Was there call a, not a script, but Yeah. We would pick a topic. We'd pick a topic, and I mean a little bit like what we do on Sofa King, because we would pick a topic, and we would try to like come in with something to say about it but the internet was so shitty and there wasn't much out there. So you'd come in with just nothing but opinions and shit you read in the newspaper or something, you know? Yeah. So, but, and it, it wasn't, it was the a thing. It's just a lot of stupid skits and us just dicking around and horrible, awkward pauses. And, but no one was listening and no one cared. So <laughs> it was good for us. <laughs> That's sick.
0: So, uh, you know, one of the, like I, again from listening to your podcast especially of late because you've got a new book kind of coming out which we can talk about now or actually we'll talk about the new book later but like what what got you dabbling into actually writing fiction
1: it was always my goal that was why I wanted to study I just I love language I love the written word I love writing I think all my time I love storytelling I think was what really got me into it in the beginning because I loved Dungeons and Dragons. I was always a dungeon master. I loved sitting at the table and putting a story together and watching the characters act things out and see how it unfolds. You know, and then there was the surprise of, you know, the dice roll made this guy die and I wasn't planning on it. And so that that was kind of cool. It was one part improv, one part writing. But just the idea of telling stories, that was really attractive to me. And then my sister got a job working for like Disney for, like, Raina Vista and Touchstone Television she wrote for the god-awful sitcom Blossom. Um, yes. And she hated it and got burned out real quick. Like, within two years, she was like, fuck this town, fuck this job, fuck screenplays. And that largely sat with me. I just watched the endless hustle of her and all of her friends writing these amazing screenplays that no one would give two shifts about. And my brother worked for a production company. And the main producer, he was really good friends with the main producer. And I remember sitting in his office and a friend of mine went in to pitch a script to him. And I happened to be in LA at the time. And my friend had just left and I didn't even know he was there. And I looked down at my friend, at my brother's friend, Moe's desk. And I was like, Oh, that's so-and-so screenplay. I know him. And he was like, yeah, I know you know him. That thing's a piece of shit. He said, let me show you the most valuable thing about this. And I said, okay. And he took the three metal tabs holding the screenplay together threw all the paper in the recycling bin and opened up a drawer full of thousands of metal tabs and dropped them in the drawer. (laughs) I was like, oh, shit. Like, no, thank you. That hustle is brutal. Doesn't matter how good or bad your script is, it's all about you just fucking cock in front of a producer time after time after time to convince someone to take your work and then do whatever the fuck they want with it, you know? Not my, not but my type of writing. That's
0: such a, that's such a brutal. um That's just such a brutal. Like, what seeing that, seeing someone literally go, this clip is the only thing of worth in that person's, you know, and then putting it in a drawer. Like, you couldn't have scripted that better. No, <laughs> like, you know. If you get you know throw that on an episode of Entourage or whatever, yeah, like you yes. couldn't have scripted that better. No. That whole scene, yeah. And the
1: whole drawer was full of bent, used tabs from a thousand yeah. other screenplays, and it's just like, yeah. oh my god, it's like an elephant graveyard. That got
0: exactly the same treatment. Yeah, <laughs> fuck.
1: Yeah, no, it's just not my. And I've had friends; their job has been to find scripts and get them to producers, and they'll call me and be like, "Dude, write a script. I'll get it in the producers' hands." I'm like, "No, thanks." Nope. Yeah. I want want full creative control of the thing that I'm doing. I want the entire and another friend of mine who did screenplays for a while and so forth. Now he works um, on the Call of Duty franchises. I had him come into a guest spot in a creative writing class I was teaching and to talk about screenwriting. And he said, I want to start this talk by telling you the most important thing you can ever learn about a screenplay. When you sit down to write a screenplay, a screenplay has one job, and that is the screenplay is a tool that a producer uses to secure funding. Period. That's right. it. It's yeah. not a piece of art. It's not your baby. It's nothing else. And whatever you envisioned it to be, <laughs> as soon as they secure funding, you can go fuck yourself. They're going to do whatever they want to because now they've got their funding. Wow. And I was like, that's a, one- another harsh slap of reality. Yeah. 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 And hearing that, it made screenplays make a lot more sense to me. I was like, oh, I could probably do that, but I don't want to. Like knowing that, I could write a screenplay, but that's that's not my thing. I want to write fiction. I love the language. I love the narrative. I love all that stuff that you have to cut bare bones, bare bones, bare bones for a screenplay. Even a play, even a stage play, not my thing. I don't – dialogue – isn't my strong suit. I don't believe. I think my narration is my strong suit. So,
0: so let's, uh, you know, let's jump into some music. What, um, mm-hmm. w- what do you listen to? Like, what's on the radar at this kind of time of your life when everything's kind of on track with work and that kind of thing?
1: Um, I think it's it's kind of torn. I had two songs to round out the five. Um. One of them is a thing that always, like, when I'm just, like, raging at the world, which is very common, um, yeah. I think the the only thing that really kind of sees me through is Nine Inch Nails. And wow, okay. If I really had to pick one, I would probably pick Mr. Self-Destruct.
0: So how does Nine Inch Nails come into onto your radar? Like, is it just an MTV thing? Like, Because it's not like they were a really a radio band.
1: No, not at all. Actually, I saw Nine Inch Nails in the back of a shithole club in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where my brother and Fuzzy lived, before I even knew they were Nine Inch Nails. It was probably like a pre-release concert before their first album in like 88 maybe, and I saw Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails, and they played in this little shitty pizza joint. Um, I didn't even know that was them until like a decade later when Will was like, do you realize that that group you saw when you came to Ann Arbor, that was fucking Nine Inch Nails. And I was like, oh, God damn, you're right. But uh, my brother, he liked industrial music. He liked KMFDM and he liked all this German industrial stuff. And I couldn't palate. My palate wasn't strong enough for most of it. But something about Nine Inch yeah, Nails it's, clicked with me.
0: He, Trent Reznor still has, even at even he's dirtier, still has that, songwriter, you know, I don't want to say pop, but like that kind of that sensibility. Yeah,
5: that yeah, yeah. For y- sure.
0: If you if you filter through if you filter through the noise, there's still a really great I mean, there's a great song there with the noise. No, but yeah, if but you, you filter you fil- through it
1: you filter through the noise and you realize this isn't just noise for noise sake. These are like yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. these are layers that he's building and subtracting to create a thing. And it's like I hear people all the time and they're like, Nine inch nails is bullshit. You know, give me a synthesizer in a weekend and I'll make a song as good as Trent Reznor. And I'm like, no, but you won't. (laughs) That's right. Like he's a fucking genius. Like and when I think about my love of jazz, when I listen to nine inch nails, I hear jazz. Like he's doing things that are experimental and that are just cutting edge and there's just layers to it and depth to it. And it's not just rage, even though rage is a huge part of it, but the music, it's just like, Even like for a while, I was like really upset all the time. And I even talked to my therapist and I was like, you know what? I'm not going to listen to any music that makes me upset because I'm always upset. My blood pressure's high. I'm going to spend like two weeks and I'm just going to listen to music that calms me. And she was like, I think that's a good idea. And about a week into it, I was about to fucking punch the universe. And I put on Nine Inch Nails and it all just melted away. And I was like, nope, got to have Nine Inch Nails.
0: You know, it doesn't uh, it it doesn't scream. Maybe it's the Bakersfield kind of thing, like because, like I guess around the, uh, I mean, a bit later. To me, Bakersfield was always on the map. Part of me because mm-hmm. of um because of corn. Like yes. that's it. Like that was and because of Buck
1: Owens, Buck Owens and Dwight Yoakam and that like old country scene. That's also big.
0: Oh right, yeah. okay. Like I remember, I can't remember what album it was. It was one of their first, like I got into them on their first two albums when they came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a quote, someone wrote, in, like there was a quote about Bakersfield in one of their CDs, like completely dismissive of of Bakersfield as a right. town. Right. And like, and that, to me, that put them on the map. Like that, yeah, that was like, oh, well, that's where they're from kind of thing. But prior to that, I didn't know it, I didn't know it was a town. No, no music that ever kind of hit my radar or come across there. But, like, from my small understanding of what I get at Bakersfield now, a, it makes a lot of sense that a band like Corn could kind of grow out of that. And, and like, yeah, a band like Corn will grow out of that kind of um, area and then right. bands like Nine Inch Nails and all those bands of the time that weren't, you know, that weren't Nirvana or weren't Pearl Jam or weren't Soundgarden who are – they write a lot of popular songs – not that they're pop but you know a lot more palatable songs right. they are generally good looking people that kind of thing where like corn and that kind of sound wasn't wasn't based on looks it was all about aggression right and yeah that's that. so i can see kind of how the time how nine inch nails would kind of hit your radar because i feel that was like that was what was going on that was like yeah, uh, that, kind was of the same. yeah that, that was that was yeah, for those people who yeah and it's a yeah, very L.A. Yeah.
1: sound. Like, he's an L.A.-based artist, or he was for years. So it's another yeah. kind of locally sort of L.A. kind of a thing. I don't know. I mean, I know it's an international, you know, success of a band, but I always wonder how big is Nine Inch Nails back east compared to California. I have no idea. But, yeah. yeah. That that particular song, like, it just, just the, like, if you were to just skip to the last 20 seconds of Mr. Self-Destruct, you wouldn't even think you were listening to music.
4: It's yeah, just right. <laughs> sheer noise.
1: But when you take the yeah. ride and it ends at this crescendo of pure noise and anger, like you're just in it and it's brilliant. And his voice, just the way he screams, like it's, it's just fantastic. He's, he's yeah, it
0: all it all makes sense mm-hmm. in context. Alrighty, so um, this is the last part of the podcast where – you know, it's it's always, you know, the whole thing's always going to be different for everybody. But some people have done a lot of things. Some people have done a a couple of things. Um, You, you know, you seem to be a jack of a lot of different trades. Mm -hmm. Um, So talk, you know, feel free to talk about whatever you want to from the last couple of years, be it your writing. Obviously we'll probably touch on the podcast, but all those kind of things that go along with it that you've kind of. Yeah. So
1: we do, um, the sofa king podcast which if you haven't listened to it before um be ready for a lot of dick jokes and some seriously not safe for work content um yes and i like to tell people people are like oh you know harsh language doesn't bother me and it's like that's not the not safe for work part (laughs) like like the things that come out of our mouths are so foul and so offensive and I think, and, and, you know, we get feedback every so often on social media. And it's like, I remember one person who's a huge listener of the show now and has been to our meetups and stuff. Like, the first contact I ever had with this person was they sent me a message on Instagram and they said, I just listened to, to your show for the first time. I think I like it, but I have to ask a serious question. Are you three racists? And I wrote oh, back, and I was right. like, no, we're not. You know, like, we're not, like, we make horrible racially insulting jokes, sexually insulting jokes, like all sorts of stuff and I you know I like to study comedy. I'm not like a stand-up comedian and never will be, but I love comedians and cars getting coffee and interviews with comedians yeah. and it's like one of the things that I regularly hear them say is if the joke isn't coming from a place of hate, then it's not a racist joke. Okay. Yep. Like when you like you when you're saying it because you believe this shit and you genu- genuinely hate or dismiss or, or think you're better than this other group, then yeah, that's a fucking racist joke you just told. But when you gen- when you genuinely aren't coming from it from that place, when you're just trying to get a laugh and it happens to be exploiting a stereotype or whatever, I don't think it's racist, and I, I think at the heart of hearts, from all three of us, we we take a shot at anybody. It doesn't matter. Like there's nothing. Yeah, everybody limits. is fair game. <laughs> like yeah. everybody, ourselves included. Yeah. You know, and and I don't know, but it's just it's just fun. I mean, the, the group that supports it is fun, and I started it because I wanted it to be. Can I build up a listenership that I can sell my fiction to? Like that was that was that's interesting. The,
0: that's really yeah.
1: interesting, okay? That was one of the main things that got me into it. and it's really become inverted. like now, almost all I do, if I have time to work on something it's research for the show and I seldom write anymore because I just haven't had any time to bond and so forth. But it's kind of become inverted. Like the podcast is the primary creative outlet I have and writing is secondary. And it didn't start that way. And it started, I'm starting to feel a shift back. Like I'm always going to love the show and be dedicated to it, but I am finally kind of back in the place where I might be able to start writing again, meaningfully. And I'm getting ready yeah. to re-release my, my novels with a different publisher Props. Hopefully in December, I was told like somewhere between Black Friday and Christmas this year, um, we'll be doing it. It's a group of novels I've been working on for fucking ever. And the novels are called The Six Paradigm Novels. And the first one, the re-release of it is going to be called 181 Pine. And then six months after that, we'll release the second one, which is called The Caretaker. And then probably a year after that, we'll release the third one, which is called The Singularity Sisters. And it's like a, like a near-future cyberpunky nanotech kind of a, a story, a lot of virtual reality and cool Stuff. I try to make it as realistic as possible. It's all grounded in a lot of real world research, real world applications of nanotechnology, computation, artificial intelligence. Like, I'm not just like pulling shit out of my hat and saying, oh, well, the aliens came down with this thing and that's why we can teleport. It's like, nope. Everything yeah, in there is something that to me is realistic and yeah. possible. Yeah.
0: Wow. So, you're, you know, Sophie King podcast, there's three guys. You all have different. You know, you're, you're three different characters who all have different roles and bring different things to the to the actual each individual episode. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yours is yours is the labour intensive one. Like to do to nut out two original and then a bonus, you know, two normal and then one bonus episodes a right. week.
1: Right.
0: With where you're literally steering the ship with the information that you know episodes go for an hour and a half. That's a lot of that's a lot of research to pull.
1: Like it's a lot of research. It is a it is a lot of
0: research. It constantly blows my mind. Like, are you like you know without you know how the sausage is made? Seeing how the sausage is made, are you like? Is it hours and hours and hours? Or do, like, do you kind of go? Like, sorry, let me start that again. Do you get as much information as you're content with? Or like, what makes you stop? Yeah, it's it's a research? rare
1: week. It's a rare week where I didn't get as much as I wanted to. I kind of I a. In my world of research, this is bullshit research. Like real You're research is right. like I spent a year and everything has been corroborated and I've checked the credentials of every single person I'm putting in my we don't do any of that shit. It's just like what do Wikipedia yeah. say? Yeah. What this crazy like conspiracy theorists say? Like what like yeah. who's, like whatever? We don't really care. We're not trying to fact check and do whatever. Um, so it's yeah. really kind of relaxed research, but and and Brent does the same. I mean, Brent kills himself doing research. He tends to be more documentary-heavy, and I can't really watch documentaries as part of my research process. It throws me off. Um, So mine's all reading, and he does a lot, which is good, because then we usually come at it from from slightly different angles. Brad is an anomaly. I don't know how he does it. For the most part, he doesn't study. Like, sometimes he does, but he usually doesn't. But his ability... To be reading articles while we're talking about shit, still be in the conversation and be reading stuff to contribute at the same time blows my mind. I could never do that in a million years. So
0: he's he's doing uh, you know, you'd never you'd never I'm sure I'm not the first person to say this, but you'd never pick it up by listening to it.
1: No, he's live time researching. and it was a it was a yeah. conflict with us for a while. We we're like, "What, dude? You got to research!" Like, we're busting our asses to have this research, and you're not researching. And it was a real bone of contention between all of us for the first several months of the show. And eventually, once he started bringing his his laptop down, and he was just like live time researching and still fully engaged and coming up with facts and whatever. Like, it's unbelievable. I don't know how he does it. I don't know how he, and again that's like fine. we all bring different strengths to the to the show his strength isn't the in-depth research he did that's not what he brings to yeah. the show and it's not what he should bring to the show right and it took us a long yeah. time to realize that that's not his thing that's not what he's bringing so don't fucking worry about whether you researched or not all research because i'll be useless if i didn't you know um yeah yeah but um no it's 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 labor intensive. I usually start with something and like, I, I have two different phases. Like the first phase is, do I have the bones? Like, do I have the bones of this thing that's happening? And like, if I'm sick or if it's a rush or if I'm trying to grade all week and I don't have time, if all I can get is the bones, I'll feel okay about going into the show. Cause at least I've got the bones of the story. But most weeks what's ideal is I also have what I call the frosting which is a secondary level of searches for like the quirky, weird, funky shit, right? So it's like, I've got all the basics, but now what are the weird details about this thing? What did the conspiracy theorists think about this guy's death? And are there weird BuzzFeed top 10 weird facts about this guy's sex life? Or are there, you know, and then you start looking for the weird quirky things and then I drop all that into my notes along with everything else but it's like I get that bare bones and then I look for the quirky interesting freaky stuff that I can layer on top of it Um, but uh, usually I have both of those levels and I'm happy going into it but sometimes I just have that bare bones um, but again, that's the beauty of having three people because it's like I'll I'll even text them early on. It's like, guys, I got nothing this week. Like I hope you guys can pick up some slack and then those weeks Brad will be like, yeah, I'll definitely do some more research and Brent will just be nervous about it and then we'll move on from there. <laughs> like, you
0: know, it's, as I said right at the start, this is like the So Thinking Podcast was such a major, um, you know, one of the major influences for me to kind of, put my head down and kind of have a crack at it. And, um, yeah, so it's – which is – and I'm stoked to have you on.
1: That makes me very happy. That makes me very happy.
0: And, you know, looking at looking at what you guys can achieve and what you have achieved, like you do – like for people who don't know, you've probably done half a dozen meetups all across the US. Does that sound um, about right?
1: Uh, one, two, Yeah, I guess six or seven, like a smaller one here in town, a couple in Anaheim, a couple in Kansas City during the the Paracons, and then Chicago and New York. Oh, that's right.
2: Yeah. yeah. We were supposed to
1: do one in New Orleans, but shit just all went south and we weren't able to go, and we felt so horrible because people had already booked tickets like airplane tickets to fly to meet us. And I don't even remember what happened. I, I think it was maybe right when my brother killed himself. And it was just like, I, I'm not doing anything. I can't remember the timing, but something huge was happening. I was like, this just isn't going to go down. Um, but you know what? Like
0: if you're in, you know, if you, if you got tickets to New Orleans, I'm sure you'll, it's a bummer, but I'm sure. you That's make exactly it what
1: we said. You're still going to <laughs> fucking New Orleans, but <laughs> so shut your mouth about it, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. So the other, um, before we, I guess before we wrap it up, one thing that's always interested me is, um, and you you cop a lot. Oh, I feel like you not cop a lot of shit for it, but it's always brought up and always kind of, yeah. It's it's a it's a weird point of contention. I'll word that a lot better eventually. But um, you're you're a very vocal vegan or, or yeah. plant based eater. Mm-hmm. Um, talk me through, like, if if it's not too personal. Talk me through kind of that evolution, how that kind of came came about.
1: It was a long evolution. Actually, the part of the craziness of my day was, as you know, we talked about it before the show, was I had to get, uh, two of my dogs had to get dentals, which if you don't have a dog, they fully have to, you know, knock them out and you know, do blood tests and it's just like a, it's more intensive than it would think like, Oh, I'm going to the dentist to get my teeth cleaned and like fully have to knock them out. And one of my dogs is 15. So that's kind of sketchy for a 15 year old dog, you know?
3: Yeah. Um,
1: but Priscilla, the dog who's got her teeth cleaned today, I, I remember, um, years and years and years ago, um, I was, uh, I read a story that said that there was an article and it was talking about pigs and it said that they, they had developed some kind of a basic IQ and creativity test that they could give to, like, really lowly intelligence animals, and they gave it to pigs, pigs horses, dogs, um, cats, and human babies that were one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old, and four-year-old. And the only okay. thing that scored higher than the pig was a four-year-old human. Wow, And it fucking blew my mind and I was just yeah. sitting there and maybe a day or two after I read that article, um, Priscilla came up and just rolled on her back and showed me her belly and I was like, pigs are smarter than Priscilla. Like, fuck me. I was just like, yeah. I, can't, I can't do it. Like, I can't ever do that again in my life. And at that point, I became. And up until then, like, we went through, I went through a year where just research had taught me all the fucking horrors of, Factory farming and all that stuff, and I still ate meat, but I only bought it from like local ranches that weren't factory farms and stuff like that. But yeah, I was never a big meat eater it's in the an first way. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm horribly lactose intolerant, so I couldn't really do dairy either. You know, at that point. Um, okay. But then we hit a point where I was like, uh, I can. I realize I'm only comfortable eating animals that I'm comfortable killing. And I was like, I grew up fishing yep. on Saint Mary's Lake, and so forth. Like I had no problem eating any seafood because I would kill all that shit and eat it. And one year over the summer, we went to um, me and my ex now ex wife went to the Central Coast, and we were going to go clamming. And you just there's just clams on the beach, and you go out super early in the morning, right before sunup, and you just get a little shovel and you dig up all these clams, and you got fresh clams to eat. Yep. Then we woke up and we were going to go clamming. And I was like, I don't think I can go kill all those clams. He's like, God damn it. I guess I can't eat seafood. Fuck. <laughs> and that clamming thing happened within a week or two of that pig story. And I was like, that's it. I just can't right. eat anymore. I guess I'm a vegetarian. And then she ended up working at a place called uh, Farm Sanctuary. There's two of them in America and they're just like rescues for um factory farm animals. They're just farms that the animals, you know, live out and die and so forth. And she was a volunteer and she lived and worked there for three months in Acton, California. And part of it was you can, you have to live a vegan lifestyle while you're here. Um, right. Okay. You don't have, you know, otherwise you don't have to, but while you're here you have to. And she was like, so I'm going to have to do that. And then as soon as she said that, I was like, you know what? I'm a bitch. Like I'm saying all this stuff about animals and all this stuff and I'm still eating eggs and every so often I'll still do dairy and whatever. And I was like, yeah, that only makes sense anyway because if I'm going to put my money where my mouth is, fuck being a vegetarian because you're a bitch. (laughs) I was like, I got to go. I'm all in or I'm not, you know, because it's an ethical thing. A lot of people do it for the environment, especially now that's becoming huge. Like just an environmental or a health thing, but it's not an ethical thing about animal treatment. But for me, and I just, I realized, and somebody asked me, I don't know, three or four years ago. They were like, "Why are you a vegan?" And I really never had a good answer. And I surprised myself? And I just said, "You know what? I just made the decision that I want to live a life that never harms another living creature again."
2: Yeah.
1: And I was like, "That's that pretty much that makes that, sense." That does it. Like that's that's it. And it's becoming much easier. Like the it's becoming so popular. And so calm it's, it's crazy crazy what's happened in the last two or
0: three years yeah so what's before we before we wrap it up what's your favorite what's the go-to spot if you're in bakersfield or or, or alternatively in la what's what's the go-to vegan spot
1: um in oh god i can never remember the name of the place in la there's a place cafe something it's, like, it's a little chain um i'd have to to look it up um it started in palm springs and there's two or three of them there's just fucking lines out the door of people who aren't even vegan because the food is just incredible and i remember i was gonna oh, work it's gonna kill me because i
0: went i only went there recently ah uh, is earth cafe no
1: no nope, nope. nope. Fuck, it's gonna drive me nuts um But I went, there was one in Palm Springs and I went to a conference in Palm Springs and it was just in some little ghetto bullshit strip mall. And I was like, this is not going to be as good as the ones in LA. And I went in there and the food was just astoundingly better than any of the other ones that I'd been to. And when the person came back out, I was like, this food is so much better than the ones in L.A. Like, what is the difference here? And she said, oh, because the, the creator of the franchise lives in Palm Springs and she's the one that just cooked your burger. She's a chef. And I'm like, i oh, fucking Wow. Like, that makes sense. <laughs> but in Bakersfield, <laughs> there's a place called the Hens Roost and they run all the farmer's markets in Bakersfield and they have like a vegan restaurant. It's just un- unbelievable.
0: So let's, I guess, let, before, actually, no, before we pick the last song, um, I just want to thank you. This has been a long time in the works, and um, yeah, I've been uh,
1: you watching know, forever. I, it's been fun. It's been really
0: yeah. fun. Yeah, and um, yeah yeah, really appreciate you know you spending the time because I understand how busy you are, and that completely makes sense. Um, and I'm stoked we got it to kind of happen. So
1: yeah, and the next time, the next time you're in California, you need to give us a shout oh, out, and we'll
0: yeah, yeah. absolutely. I'll yeah. make the trip. It's only like
1: two yeah, hours for sure. from LA. Two hours. Yeah, LA to Bakersfield? Yeah, t- depending on traffic, it's about two hours. When I used to get to UCLA, yeah. sometimes I'd get there an hour, 45 minutes, it on the traffic. Sometimes it'd be yeah. four, um, depending on the traffic.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, the other end of the extreme, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, what are we going to go with Musical.ly?
1: So, my last song, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't include someone who's like a huge influence on me Musical.ly, um, which is Tom Waits. Um, oh, wow, okay. Yeah, and... Uh, Again, like it was like picking a favorite print song, picking a favorite Tom Waits song is almost fucking impossible. Um, and I was just kind of shifting through. I had like a little Tom Waits playlist, and I was flipping through it yeah. and waiting for the one that resonated the most. And I think it's yep. um, it's from Blue Valentine, and it's twenty nine dollars.
0: So what is it before we get, before we kind of play the song? I feel like I feel like the connection here would be more lyrically than musically is that is that a good summation like i mean no it's both. His lyrics I mean,
1: this, this okay. particular one it's it's more of a jazz blues era for tom wait because like his recent stuff isn't right. jazz or blues it's tom wait like there's no yeah. category yeah, yeah. to, to put it and i thought about his song black wings that was almost the song i picked which is hard to say a genre for but 29 dollars is very much a blues song and the, it's just it's it's horribly dark I mean it's about this girl who comes from Chicago to Los Angeles trying to make it big and like all this fucking horrible shit that happens to her on like literally the day she gets off the bus and it's just it's incredibly dark and just like this urban cautionary tale but it's funny like it's just laced with his wit like the the things that there's just just this gallows humor behind it all, and the music is just this yeah. unbelievable. Like you just want to sip on some whiskey when the music's playing. Um, <laughs> but just some, that's something about Tom Waits that I love, which is just the darkness plus the humor plus the lyrics. I mean, he's just a poet. He's one of the best poets alive. You know, lyrically, he's yeah, yeah. just unbelievable, and then the music is unbelievable. And I had the fortune of seeing him play live at the turn and it was just it was like nothing i would ever seen before. That's amazing.
0: Is he very... How long ago did you see him play?
1: Probably
0: about... It's been a while now, probably 15 years. Okay, right. Is he... He seems like the kind of artist who, like, takes... Like, pays no risk... Not no respect, but, like, you know, says... This is... Like... Watching me like watching me perform live is a is a different experience to putting on a CD. So I'm gonna like we're all gonna act accordingly. And I, like I feel like he's the kind of guy. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but where his live that what his, the songs live are nothing. Look, like only like bare bones of what the actual recorded thing is and it's, com- yeah, it's completely kinda. different Yeah, kind of. I mean, you've
1: got, yeah. you've got the lyrics to hang on to and the music is just totally yeah. different. And there's a whole stretch where he just pulled out a piano and would just sing random songs on the piano that you know <laughs> were just yeah. like this one came up. And the Wiltern is a pretty small theatre but a famous theatre in, in L.A. Um, yeah. And someone in the audience when he was like, like he was playing between songs and he stopped and he was like, you know – uh, Christ, what should I play next? You know, and he's sitting there thinking about it. And someone from the audience like screamed out a song, and he just kind of chuckled, you know, and he said something like, uh, "You know, well the problem is, you know, songs are kind of like ex girlfriends. You might you might remember their moves in bed, but you can't quite recall their names." And he was just like basically oh, saying, wow. <laughs> he was oh. like, basically saying, "That's a great song. I don't remember the fucking lyrics." You know. Yeah. And he just played what he wanted and the band kept up and it was it was unbelievable.
0: Fucking that's amazing Hey, what a way to end it. Again, thank you very much. Um Thank you, man. It was yeah, great. I really appreciate it. Okay.
5: He gonna make sure he's reimbursed. Not more than one in a million. Who's always make mistakes?
0: told you it was fantastic your boy doesn't lie um, that's it for the year again for the actual interviews that is um, the next couple of weeks I'll be doing the the top you know my top 10 lists uh, musically of 2018 so hopefully you come check that out and we'll do it all again next
4: year cool the rich get rich, that's how it goes Everybody knows Everybody knows that the boat is leaking Everybody knows the captain lied. Everybody got this broken feeling Like their father or their dog just died Everybody talking to their pockets Everybody wants a box of chocolates And a long stem roll dead, but there's gonna be a meter on your bed that we'll disclose. Sacred Heart